This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Jasmine Ruddy, Medicare for All organizer with National Nurses United. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, of course. So Jasmine, what's currently going on with Medicare for All? What's going on with Medicare for All? So much, right? Which is um, which is a really great um, moment. We're in a really great moment right now. There's state bills uh, at the state level all over the country uh, that are being introduced or have been introduced on Medicare for All. Uh, there's, of course, two bills at the federal level that have been introduced uh, on, on Medicare for All, and there's going to be a new bill, uh, a new version of the House bill at the federal level that's going to be reintroduced in January. Uh, and that's going to be kind of a lot of the focus for us and other organizations working on Medicare for All. Uh, in, in 2019. And what do the results of the 2018 midterms mean for Medicare for All? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think it means that we, you know, I think it means that we are in a position to be really, really hopeful uh, and feel really confident about, you know, about the next year for this movement because, uh, you know, a record number of candidates in 2018 uh, we saw ran on Medicare for All, right? You're hearing more and more candidates than ever run uh, really explicitly on this pretty progressive leftist uh, platform on on healthcare, which is you know full Medicare for All. Um, we also saw that you know uh, overall of all of the issues in 2018 among uh, voters, among the American public, that healthcare was at the top. Right. So we know that people are looking for solutions to our broken system. We know that this is at the top of people's minds. We know that healthcare is going to be a huge conversation at the state, at the you know, local and at the federal level in the next year. And it's really, you know, up to us to sort of take advantage of all this momentum uh, among, the, you know, among the popularity of Medicare for all and among people's urgent need for politicians and, you know, for, for our politicians to come up with solutions to our broken system. Uh, so it's really, you know, we see it as this exciting moment for us to take advantage of all of the momentum uh, around, uh, you know, sort of the momentum around Medicare for all, but also uh, around just, you know, this need, this dire increasing need to fix the system to push forward what we know is the only solution that will actually fix our broken system, uh, which is Medicare for all. Uh, and I mentioned, you know, the, the increasing kind of momentum around this because not only are candidates, you know, running on this, uh, you know, at a record level. But there's also record support among the public. So a couple of years ago, even Medicare for all was sort of this like pretty like fringe, uh, you know, healthcare policy. And in 2018, Medicare for all is now supported by a whopping 70% of Americans. Uh, and it's supported um, among partisan lines. It's supported by 85% of Democrats and most astoundingly by 52% of Republicans. So across the board, people are seeing that Medicare for all, it makes economic sense. Uh, it's the only solution that's going to fix our, our health care crisis in this country. 
uh, and it's you know more than past time to just get this done. So I think that the 2018 election showed us um, that you know there's a lot of momentum to take advantage of, uh, and you know it's really just time to uh, to push forward and win. And how exactly did Medicare for All go from this fringe idea to an idea that's supported by now a majority of Republicans? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think that uh, I think Medicare for All over the last couple of years has uh, just kind of increasingly become uh, part of you know the political conversation. It's in the news. Uh, it's you know people are talking about it. People are writing about it. There are. Uh, you know, studies being written about it all the time. So it's just kind of like become more and more part of um, our culture. And I think it, it is, uh, you know, we can't uh, understate how much the Bernie Sanders 2016 campaign, uh, how large of a role that played in advancing, uh, you know, a whole host of progressive policies, but sort of one of the most notable being Medicare for All, because Bernie talked about it on the campaign trail day after day for over a year. Uh, and brought it to the forefront of people's minds. So I think that's a really large part of it. And then I think, you know, on the other end, uh, you know, it's, it's increased in popularity because people are realizing more and more every day how broken our healthcare system is, right? Every single year, American families across the country, whether they are conservative or liberal, uh, they're paying more out of their pockets for their premiums, for their deductibles. They're increasingly paying more expensive uh, healthcare costs for getting less care. So people are, you know, trying to see the doctor and are, are increasingly, uh, you know, unable to do so, even when they're paying more than they were paying the year before. Uh, so I think it's just a, 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 you know, a matter of time before, uh, you know, more and more people uh, start to, to, you know, realize that this surely can't be the norm. That surely there's a better way that we could do this. Um, we know, you know, we pay more, we pay more per person for our healthcare. Uh, in America than any other country in the world. Um, and people are starting to, I think, to realize that um, that the status quo, it's not the way they asked. I think that's a large part of it, too. And how does Obamacare play into this? How did the passage of Obamacare and how we saw it implemented affect people's perspective on health care? Yeah, that's a great question. There's a lot you could say about, <laughs> about that, right? Um, I mean, we could talk for hours just about that. I mean, what I will say is, is um, we certainly have to acknowledge the gains that the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare uh, helped us make in the United States, right? Uh, when after you know, since since Obamacare passed, uh, twenty million more Americans now have health care coverage that didn't before, and that's a huge deal in itself, right? So you're talking about American people who previously didn't have any insurance at all. Uh, now, at the very least, do have access to, uh, even if they're paying, you know, expensive premiums and deductibles and copays, at least they have access to that coverage, and it helps kind of close that gap. That's a huge deal in itself, right? Uh, but we have to acknowledge that uh, the Affordable Care Act did not go nearly far enough to fix the root of the crisis that we know uh, is what makes our system broken, which is that insurance companies are still in the driver's seat and still are profiting off of the system, uh, off of, you know, working class American families trying to just get the health care that they need. Uh, so I think that, uh, you know, I think that Obamacare um, did a lot for the conversation because it sort of, first of all, helped show that, like, uh, we can pass policies that get more people health care. 
uh, and that that makes a difference, right? We've seen we've seen Obamacare make a huge difference in people's lives, and we know that that that, that this can work. Um, but it also taught us what is uh, what not to do, what's still wrong, because healthcare is still really expensive. People still can't afford it. And when you ask yourself, well, why? Why did that happen? I thought Obamacare was supposed to fix everything. Uh, and you sort of realize, well, the answer is that uh, Obamacare just helped people get health insurance. But the health insurance companies still exist. And they're still making, you know, health insurance CEOs are still making literally millions of dollars every single year for American families just to not even get the health care that they're paying for already. So I think that's what it sort of helps show us, too. And what you're talking about there with health insurance CEOs making all this money kind of gets to the core of, I would say, the difference between progressives and corporate Democrats within the Democratic Party, uh, which is that we see a lot of more corporate Democrats who unsurprisingly take a fair deal of money from uh, the health insurance industry do not want to get rid of the private market. The argument that folks for single payer make is that the very existence of a private market is always going to mean that rich people have more access and more options than poor people. Where do you stand on that? Uh, At National Nurses United, we fully and only support Medicare for All because we know sort of exactly what you're saying, that as long as we let uh, insurance companies stay in the driver's seat, our system will continue to be broken. Uh, and and any solution that's sort of uh, you know more incrementalist than than that will not solve the root of the problem. And and that you know so that's that's really our basic stance on that. And if you agree with us, and many of these you know centrist Democrats would tell us that they do agree with us on this. If you agree with us on the premise that healthcare is a human right, then you sh- there's no reason that you should support any system that allows insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies to make a profit off the backs of working people. What are we trying to achieve here? We're trying to achieve universal, guaranteed health care, not access to health care. We know that that's different. Access to You can have access to anything. It doesn't mean that you have it, right? Uh, we know that guaranteed quality health care for every single person in the United States is what, we're, is what we're achieving, is what we're aiming to achieve. And if that's the goal that we're striving for, then any system that lets the profit-making corporations continue to to exist is not going to solve the root of the problem. And you know what's so great, and and again, you know, credit to to Bernie Sanders for you know talking about this every single day on the campaign trail and really you know helping bring this this into the forefront. What's so great is that we have examples all over the country to look for about how this is already being done. We're actually not trying to create something new here. We're just trying to catch up to the rest of the world that's already figured this out. Right, every other industrialized country in the world has figured out how to guarantee healthcare for their citizens, and here in the U.S., we're for some reason just not doing that. And that's you know for really no other reason that that in the U.S., which we know uh, is that you know corporate greed in the U.S. in every sector of the economy uh, is, is out of control, and that's you know including in our healthcare system. So. Uh, it's really a shame that, yeah, like, just like you say, I mean, a lot of these politicians, they'll sort of agree with us on this premise that healthcare is a human right. And they'll say, oh, yeah, we want, you know, universal healthcare. But at the same time, they turn around and they're being, you know, their pockets are being lined by these uh, donations that they're getting from these 
pharmaceutical and insurance companies that, of course, uh, you know, have every uh, interest in not seeing their industry be literally eliminated. They're they're saying one thing and then doing another and trying to, uh, you know, introduce these bills that I think we're going to see a lot of in 2019 uh, that try to manage to, like, fall somewhere in the middle that, you know, say, oh, yeah, we want healthcare for everyone, but also we're still going to let these insurance companies make profit off of you. Uh, and so, you know, really, it's just about sort of, I think, calling that out and making sure that we're really, really clear on what the definition of Medicare for all means, uh, the definition of what universal health care means, and that we're not letting people get away with uh, calling themselves progressives or calling themselves, uh, you know, supporters of universal health care when really that's not what they're uh, aiming for. So. And could you clarify what exactly these non-Medicare for all, Medicare for all proposals are? Right now we have eight bills in Congress that kind of fall under that umbrella, but you're right that many of them don't really mean what Medicare for all does mean, which is single payer. How exactly is this playing out and how do we spot what's actually embodying Medicare for all and what's just piggybacking off of it? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, most of the, the bills that are sort of uh, you know less than Medicare for all that are more incrementalist you know, our understanding fall under a couple of categories. A lot of them are some version of what's called uh, Medicare Extra. Uh, what we know uh, is, um, you know, and, and this is sort of, I think, what is to, to look at uh, for, you know, who's trying to piggyback off of the movement um, is when people are trying to still use the word uh, Medicare, but they're just using it in a different way. Because what we know is that, uh, and, and we know this too, you know, Medicare is, uh, as a system, uh, which is just to say Medicare being the, the system uh, that, is, that you can uh, you could qualify for once you're a certain age as an older American where you get basically guaranteed health care from the, the U.S. government. Uh, so we know that that's by far the most popular health care system in the country. Uh, there's poll after poll that shows us that among all the different types of health care, whether it's uh, health care from your employer, whether it's from the, the marketplace, whether it's uh, from, you know, any other kinds of ways you can get health care insurance right now that Medicare is by far the most popular. We know that uh, any kind of bill that tries to, uh, tries to you know, sort of piggyback off of the popularity of Medicare is one that is to, to sort of look out for. So all that to say, Medicare Extra uh, is a, a proposal of a system that would extend Medicare right now to more people being able to qualify. So we're seeing a couple of bills uh, proposals for the age of, of uh, uh, qualifying for Medicare to be lowered to 55 uh, or you know something like that. So basically widening the pool of Americans that can qualify to get Medicare. Uh, but that's not Medicare for all, right? What that means is everyone who's still outside of that pool still buys insurance from the insurance companies uh, and that the insurance companies still uh, largely sit in the driver's seat and control the majority of the healthcare system. Uh, another kind of bucket of policies that we'll see is what's called a Medicare buy-in. Uh, and that's just a, a version that, uh, again, uses the word Medicare because of its popularity, uh, but is not about the system of Medicare for all. It's just, uh, it would be an option for people to be able to uh, buy into the Medicare system. Uh, but still, again, once again, you know, most Americans would not be part of that system and the insurance companies would still be left in the driver's seat. 
One of the biggest impediments, to some people, the biggest impediment to Medicare for all is going to be dealing with employment-based health care, not because people are necessarily okay with the system, but because 160 million people do feel some sense of stability from it. It does poll pretty well with them. And political science shows that people understand theoretical losses better than they do theoretical gains. How are we going to deal with this roadblock to Medicare for All? Yeah, that's such a great question, right? And it sort of comes back to this idea that, um, you know, what we think of as our system is because we haven't really, um, as Americans, most of us for most of our lives haven't experienced anything else. We sort of feel like this is the norm and it can be really hard to overcome that and, uh, you know, and, and talk about how it could, it could be a different way. It doesn't have to be this way. And it can be hard before you have the conversation with people for them to sort of uh, envision a system, a world that doesn't look like this. And that's really understandable. Um, but I think what's important to point out uh, is a couple of things, right? You know, maybe, yes, your employer-covered health insurance is more stable for you than, say, not having insurance, because maybe those are your options right now. Uh, it's also really important to point out that that's actually a really, you know, volatile kind of system, that our health care is tied to our employment status. That's a pretty crazy thing when you sort of step back and look at it, right? That, you know, every single day we're, uh, you know, we're having to think about, you know, there are Americans across the country who are having to make decisions about their bodies, about their health care based on their job. And they have to have these really uncomfortable conversations with their employer, right? About the kind of health care that they're, that they need to get. Uh, and it sort of, you know, just brings this really personal part of your life into the workplace. Um, and, and so people end up, you know, staying at jobs longer than they might want to because they need to keep their health insurance, right? People are stuck in, uh, we know that, uh, you know, people are stuck in jobs every single day that they don't want to have, uh, because it gives them good health care. There was a recent poll that came out that said that 50%, this is incredible, 50% of Americans are at their jobs because of their health care. Imagine a world where people could have the freedom and the flexibility to have jobs that they want to have, that because they could just get healthcare from, you know, from just being a person alive, that they could just have guaranteed healthcare and they could have any job that they want and they could have the freedom to go out and, uh, and explore different options for their careers. Uh, and then from the employer side too, right? We also know that providing health as the employer, providing healthcare to your employees has no cheap thing to do. It's really expensive to start small businesses uh, and to, you know, try to uh, employ people because you have to, for the most part, figure out how to give them health care. Uh, and so one thing we try to talk about, too, is that, you know, having Medicare for all gives people more of an opportunity to uh, be entrepreneurial and start, you know, the small business that they always dreamed of starting because they no longer have to, you know, be the sort of burden that, you know, of carrying this responsibility of providing their employees with healthcare because they're already getting it. Um, but I think more importantly than anything else, it's, you know, it's sort of, uh, de-linking our healthcare from our employment status, right? That, uh, that, um, we're, it's we're sort of this larger idea that, um, we want to be moving away from the capitalist system that we live in that ties our health and well-being to our ability to produce work 
uh, and that we should just guarantee healthcare for people because they are people, not because they are, you know, it, it helps us, uh, you know, work harder and work longer. I mean, that's really sort of where the whole idea of, uh, you know, employer-based health insurance started in the first place was to create a healthy workforce. Um, and we want to sort of delink that and, uh, and create a world where we just give people healthcare because we think that people should get healthcare. Um, so I think but that those are sort of the, the important things to point out to people about the flaws in an employer-based um, health insurance system. And then, too, what's so important to talk about is that I think you mentioned before this kind of idea of talking about the gains rather than the losses, right? Um, it's really important to talk about what we're getting uh, instead of the current system. So we talk about Medicare for All. Uh, we talk about how everyone will have guaranteed health care. You'll be able to go to the doctor and see any doctor or hospital See any doctor you want, go any, to any hospital that you want. But, you know, even though it might sound, uh, you know, it might sound obvious to those of us who, you know, who are activists in the healthcare justice movement who've been working on this for a long time, it might sound obvious to us, but it's really important to point out that that's going to be instead of the current system. So you no longer pay any deductibles, any co-pays, any premiums. You don't pay any of those costs anymore, right? Right now we pay about an average of $10,000 per year per person on healthcare in the United States. Uh, and that's insane, right? And so all of that goes away and instead we pay some amount of taxes to the federal government in order to go to any doctor, any hospital, at any time that we want to, to get free healthcare, at, you know, free at the point of cost. Um, and so it's just about, I think, pointing out that difference that what we're getting is instead of the, the you know, expensive system that we have today, um, and just pointing out, you know, to people kind of what that means, you know, I mean, you have to you think about all of the, the, the questions you have to ask yourself right now, when you when you want to go to, uh, you know, say you want to go to a doctor and get just a regular checkup, and all of the questions you have to ask yourself right now, before you do that, right? So am I getting health insurance from my employer right now? Uh, you know, how much is the copay going to be when I get there? Um, what month of the year is it? Cause I need to make sure that like, you know, I'm not, I'm, you know, the deductible is not over yet. Uh, you know, all of these different questions. And then, you know, once I get there, uh, what if I need another, uh, test or, or, uh, you know, another procedure, am I going to be able to afford it? Uh, is my health insurance going to cover it? Uh, what if I can't afford it? You know, all these questions you have to ask yourself that would just literally go away. Uh, under a Medicare for All system. So anyway, all that to say, I think it's about uh, pointing out the flaws in you know employer based an employer based healthcare system, uh, and then talking about what we'll gain under Medicare for All. And you mentioned efforts on both a state and federal level to push for Medicare for All. How does that work? There's, like I said before, there are uh, efforts all over the country uh, in different states to uh, to push Medicare for All at the state level as well as to push Medicare for all at the federal level. They'd work a little bit differently, of course. So uh, in National Nurses United, uh, we're, of course, uh, you know, really, we're based in California. Um, one of our largest chapters um, at NNU is California Nurses Association. Uh, and of course, you know, out in California, we've been incredibly involved and active in the state-level fight to, to push for Medicare for all. Uh, so what though that would look a little bit different than federal Medicare for all, of course, because uh, the state level in California, for example, it would create uh, basically the same kind of system just on a state level. So you pay state taxes to the California state government, 
who then becomes the single payer and any uh, resident of the state of California then would uh, be able to have free healthcare at the point of service uh, and still see any doctor, any hospital that they want to, but the state of California becomes the single payer. Uh, and so they're kind of just state level versions of the federal system that we're also simultaneously working towards, uh, which would, of course, uh, you know, create a national Medicare for all system. I think it's really important to point out that we all, uh, you know, I think of all of the uh, incredible activists across the country fighting at the state level for various, uh, you know, state single payer uh, you know, systems like um, in, uh, in the state of New York, they're working really hard on the state level bill. Uh, you know, we're, of course, we have a, a bill out in California or, you know, had one and we'll be reintroducing one in January. Um, while uh, we're all working really hard towards those state level uh, systems, we all acknowledge that the ultimate end goal is Medicare for all at the national level, right? Is, is passing federal Medicare for all that guarantees every person living in America uh, guaranteed healthcare at the point of service. What we know, though, is that um, as with many social issues and with many, you know, uh, with many policies in the past, it often can be incredibly helpful for states to lead the way first, right? And for states to, to create state-level systems to demonstrate how this could be done uh, and, you know, sort of uh, help just further the, the efficacy of, of these policies to help push the narrative at the federal level uh, even more, uh, particularly in a state like California, which is, <laughs> as a state alone, is the fifth largest economy in the world, right? A, a successful Medicare for all state level uh, system in California uh, could, you know, show a huge amount of support, uh, you know, at the, at the federal level. Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government, and you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. So could you tell us a little bit more about the work you're doing right now on state level and federal campaigns? What actions is your organization taking? Uh, we're going to be working really hard to reintroduce a new single payer bill in the state of California in early 2019, uh, as well as uh, uh, working with a number of organizations that are supporting the new House bill that will be reintroduced in Congress in, in January. So. Uh, uh, folks might know that there was a bill that's been in Congress for several decades called H.R. 676, uh, which is the 
the House version of, of the federal Medicare for All legislation. Uh, so this bill had um, the amazing opportunity to get 124 co-sponsors in the last congressional session, right? So we saw over the last two years as Medicare for All sort of started to become this litmus test among progressive Democrats. We saw more and more Democrats uh, sign on to this bill for a record number uh, by the end of the session of 124 co-sponsors. What's sort of uh, challenging but also really exciting about what's happening next is that Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal's office uh, is rewriting this this bill. Uh, so the, the bill that's being introduced is going to be, we're really excited that it's going to be one of the most comprehensive and progressive Medicare for All uh, pieces of legislation that's ever been introduced into Congress. Uh, and her office is planning to introduce that. But what that means uh, is that uh, because the bill is going to be so significantly uh, different and longer, uh, we're going to lose all previous co-sponsors on that bill. So all 124 Democrats that co-sponsored that bill before now are going to be off the bill and are going to have to re-co-sponsor the bill to get back on. So we know that that means that we have to build power uh, in every single House district across the country if we're going to move this bill through the House, which is really our goal among you know, a number of other organizations at the national level that are really honing in and focusing on the House bill of 2019. This is really our goal, is to build power and grassroots support in every House district across the country to move this bill forward. And I will just say, too, specifically, while we know that it's really, really crucial that we're building power, of course, everywhere. So we're not going to win Medicare for All without building a strong and united, a massive grassroots movement that's calling for Medicare for All. We know that that's going to be absolutely crucial. But on top of that, there are also a number of Democrats that we're going to be targeting uh, in the new session that are uh, even more important that, uh, that we, uh, you know, uh, make sure that their constituents are talking to, that we're getting their support for this bill. Uh, so there are, uh, just like a number of other uh, policies that progressives are focused on in the new year, there are two uh, key committees that our bill has to go through that we're going to need the support of uh, members of that committee to get it through. So those two committees are the Ways and Means Committee uh, and the Energy and Commerce Committee. Essentially, the two committees that are going to deal with any bills involving uh, you know, spending and taxation. So it's really crucial that we get the bills, the bill through, uh, through those two committees, right, to get hearings first in those committees, to get the bills through the committees, uh, and then finally get the bill to the floor for a House vote. And along the way, get as many co-sponsors, even more than 124 if we can, get as many co-sponsors onto the bill uh, as we go. Uh, so that's really the, 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 the strategy in the House is to get the, the key support um, of the, the 13 Democrats uh, who sit on the Ways and Means uh, and Energy and Commerce Committees, uh, along with, of course, getting the support of soon-to-be Speaker Nancy Pelosi. We're going to be doing a lot to make sure that her constituents hear from her that she sort of feels the feet, uh, the the fire under her feet for um, for supporting Medicare for all and nothing less. Uh, so in order to to do uh, to help you know build that support, help build the momentum around the country, we're working with hundreds of volunteers across the country who have already signed up uh, to get involved in their own communities, uh, and we're all going to be uh, organizing together around a really exciting. Uh, national Medicare for All 
week of action that's going to be happening uh, during the second week of February. Uh, so it's going to be from February 9th to the 13th. Uh, and folks uh, across the country are going to be organizing uh, what we call uh, uh, barnstorms, which is another word for basically organizing rallies uh, in their own communities, in their own house districts across the country. Uh, and folks will come together to go and attend uh, those organizing rallies in their communities. They'll hear about the plan to win Medicare for all at the national level, uh, and they'll all actually right then and there uh, jump into action and start to get to work in their own communities by organizing into signing up to do uh, canvassing and you know neighborhoods across their communities to talk to even more people about Medicare for all and why we need it and ask for their support. So uh, by doing all of that together during the second week of February as part of the National Medicare for All Week of Action, we're really going to, we feel, be able to, uh, you know, help sort of launch uh, a huge amount of action across the country that we know it's going to take to keep Medicare for All in the news, keep it in the spotlight, keep it in, you know, people's everyday conversations and make sure that that is the narrative that, that you know, that we're sort of making sure that we're dominating the narrative around healthcare in 2019. Uh, we're not letting any of these sort of, you know, centrist Democrat bills, uh, you know, take the forefront. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. And we hope to follow up with you in the future to hear about all the progress you've made. Awesome. Yeah, thanks so much, Jordan. Of course. And lastly, to our listeners, Make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and tune in to the Progressive Radio Network every week at 8 p.m. Eastern to hear our newest episodes. Thanks for listening.